This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode two, The Great Brexit Delay, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Cairns, here with Stephen Gallo and Dan Creeder to bring you our thoughts on the twists and turns of Brexit and the implications for the currency, rates, and spread markets. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Uncertainty remains the only certainty at this point in the twists and turns of Brexit. With the March 29th deadline fast approaching and no agreement on the horizon after almost two years, the chance of a Brexit delay are mounting. What progress has been made toward a smooth transition? What challenges still exist? What is the most likely outcome? And how does this impact our outlook for rates, currencies, and spreads? Stephen, let's begin with you. As you were on the ground in London with your pulse on the Brexit process, where does Brexit stand today, February 27th? So Prime Minister May struck a deal on the withdrawal agreement with the EU and Parliament overwhelmingly rejected this deal in mid-January. So for the last couple of weeks, UK negotiators, along with their EU counterparts, have been discussing the reopening of the withdrawal agreement. It seems that Theresa May's main goal is to get EU negotiators to change the contentious Irish backstop. At the very least, it seems that she would like the backstop to be time limited. As it currently stands, the backstop would keep Northern Ireland in the EU's customs regime until a deal on trade is reached between the rest of the UK and the European Union. This means that if future trade talks broke down, one part of the UK, per the backstop, Northern Ireland, would be left inside of the customs union while the rest of the UK is out. This would jeopardize the constitution of the UK, be opposed by many voters, and also be opposed by many members of parliament. And Stephen, has any progress been made toward this goal? And what are the main sticking points? So as you probably can imagine, Margaret, very little progress is being made, but the talks are expected to continue into March. The main sticking point is that Brussels refuses to reopen the withdrawal agreement or to agree to legally binding changes to the backstop, probably because it's seeking to fend off the rise of nationalism in other EU member states besides the UK. As for the UK itself, the political environment here is more or less unprecedented in modern times. MPs in both major political parties have forced the leaders of their parties to make huge policy U-turns. The level of disunity in Parliament is almost unconscionable, and also in the country as well. And Parliament is effectively attempting to wrestle control of the Brexit process out of the government's hands. What are the recent announcements that Theresa May made earlier this week? So what she did is she reiterated the government's official position, which is that the UK should leave the EU as scheduled on March 29th with or without a deal. However, the PM also promised a series of votes in Parliament that would guide the path forward 
and may ultimately result in a Brexit delay. And she's done this because of pressure from many other MPs. Some of them are in her own party. Stephen, can you explain these votes and the likely outcome of each? Sure. So first, she promised a second vote on the original withdrawal agreement by March 12th, which probably means on March 12th. And this is unlikely to pass the Commons, as it's basically most likely going to be the same deal that Parliament overwhelmingly rejected in mid-January. Second, what she has said is that if there is not sufficient support for the withdrawal agreement by March 12th, the House of Commons will be allowed to vote on whether it supports leaving the EU without a deal. The House will probably reject leaving the EU without a deal by a decent majority. However, one problem is that MPs must also have a plan B in place in order to prevent a hard Brexit. And thirdly, what Prime Minister May did earlier this week is that she said if leaving the EU without a deal is rejected by MPs, then they will vote on whether the government should request an extension of Article 50 from the EU. And this vote would happen on March 14th. If this passed, it would result in a delayed Brexit if an extension of Article 50 is granted by the unanimous approval of all 27 EU member states. Is there a chance that they vote against an Article 50 extension? Well, I think, Margaret, this is where the waters start to get really muddy once again. The majority of MPs from both of the major parties are pro-EU, but many of them represent constituents that backed leaving the EU in the 2016 referendum. So the danger that MPs are playing with by voting for uh, an extension of Article 50 is that one break of the delay leads to another and then another and then another until it becomes clear that the result of the 2016 referendum is not going to be honored. And this could certainly intensify political instability in the UK. So you're saying that a no-deal scenario is still possible? Indeed it is, in our view. So we're holding firm with our 53% probability that the UK eventually will exit the EU with or without a deal on March 29th or at the end of an extension period if one is granted by the European Union. And I would say we're basing this probability on four main points. First, MPs who vote for a Brexit delay run the risk of not honoring the outcome of the 2016 referendum. Second, a short extension, one or two months, say, is not going to make it any easier for MPs to form a consensus on a plan B. And a longer extension for up to, say, one or two years, we think is unlikely to win support in the Commons. Third, the EU is unlikely to budge on their refusal to legally change the current withdrawal agreement, which includes the Irish backstop, of course. And finally, MPs' resounding opposition to the withdrawal agreement as it currently stands is unlikely to dissipate as it includes the controversial Irish backstop, amongst other issues. So we've got all of these hurdles, seemingly the Irish backstop, one of the biggest ones. What are the other problems with May's withdrawal agreement as it currently stands? The problems are that the withdrawal agreement really offers the UK very little except the legal escape from the EU in name only. It's not a free trade deal. It puts the UK in a very weak negotiating position for any future trade discussions with the EU, and it sets nothing in stone about the future EU-UK partnership. So, Stephen, your bottom line is that there's around a 50% chance of a hard Brexit. As head of European FX strategy, how do you see this impacting the pound? 
So just to rewind a little bit, the pound has been rallying over the past few weeks in part because FX investors perceive there to be more clarity surrounding the Brexit outcome. They perceive uh, that the risk of uh, an extension of Article 50 is higher. So at around 133 or so, we would say pound dollar or cable, as it's more commonly referred to, uh, is now fully priced for, or nearly fully priced for an extension of Article 50. But in our view, an Article 50 delay basically sends us back to square one again with absolutely no clarity at all. So I guess this means that you are bearish on the pound. Yes, I would say our core stance on the pound is fundamentally bearish. And we think this is backed up by signals from the balance of payments, a soft eurozone economy, and also our views on on Brexit, of course. But the recent rally in the pound, we should say, could easily have further to run, especially with the dollar trading with a weak tone. And we would argue that now is not the time, right now at least, is not the time to be uh, looking to sell the pound. Going forward, we will, however, be looking for those opportunities. What I would basically conclude with is that the Article 50 extension narrative is unleashing a lot of pent-up FX investor interest to buy the pound. And amidst market liquidity, which is quite thin, any corporate-related demand for the currency is also helping to push it a pretty long way. So we're in an environment now with the pound where momentum has overtaken fundamentals and to a certain degree logic. And so we just have to wait it out for right now. So a wait and see approach over the near term with a longer term bearish view is your base case for the pound. Thank you, Stephen, for all of your insights today. Let's bring Dan Creter into the conversation. Dan, how have European SSAs performed as Brexit approaches? Well, quite well. Uh, primary SSA markets are signaling very little concern over Brexit, with the European SSAs placing large transactions in the dollar market, often with healthy oversubscriptions during the busiest time of issuance in the SSA market. In fact, somewhat counterintuitively, European borrowers have actually outperformed other SSAs in the months leading up to the March 29th Brexit date. For example, the major European borrowers typically trade wider than Washington-based supranationals, averaging a spread pickup of five or six basis points over the past five years. However, those spreads have tightened as much as five basis points since November, and European borrowers are now trading on top of Washington-based supranationals. In fact, that of some European SSAs has at times traded slightly narrower spreads than Washington-based supranationals in the past few weeks. So, Dan, what has driven this outperformance of European SSAs? Well, first, it appears some technical market factors may have been at play early in the year, when the debt of some European borrowers started trading special in the repo market, a very infrequent occurrence for SSA bonds. And this repo specialness implies that there was likely a short out in the market, perhaps initiated around the end of 2018, when financial conditions significantly declined. With Brexit risk looming, a short on European borrowers as a hedge on trading books makes sense, and we likely saw some outperformance of European borrowers as those shorts recovered in early 2019. However, even if that's the case, European SSA spreads have failed to widen versus alternatives over the past month, despite short positions having been covered, which implies effectively no concern over Brexit and spread markets. So leading into the March 29th deadline, how do you think that Brexit is going to impact European SSAs? Well, we don't see any large direct impact from Brexit causing any deterioration in the credit quality of European borrowers. Even for EIB, which is arguably the European borrower most directly impacted by Brexit, considering the UK is one of the four largest capital contributors to EIB, 
we don't see any impact on their credit quality. A plan is already in place to replenish the capital that we lost if and when Brexit goes through. So from a credit standpoint, European SSA should be largely unaffected. However, even if there is no direct impact on the credit quality, there is certainly headline risk that would arise from a no-deal Brexit that could send spreads wider. Not to mention the impact that Brexit is is forecasted to have on the European economy, which could hurt spreads for European borrowers. And then also the longer-term concern regarding the viability of the EU, which could also be bolstered by a no-deal Brexit. So even though we don't see any meaningful deterioration in the credit quality, we would expect a no-deal Brexit to, to cause underperformance of European borrowers. On the day that the UK first voted for Brexit, we saw SSA spreads for European borrowers as wide as 20 basis points or more in just one day. And we don't think that the underperformance would be that severe, but underperformance of 10 10 basis points or maybe even 15 uh, wouldn't be surprising. So how should SSA investors position their spread portfolios ahead of Brexit? Well, just given where spreads are now, we prefer to overweight alternatives to European borrowers, either Washington-based supranationals or even U.S. agencies that are more insulated from European risk. And we should also note that this view isn't even entirely driven by Brexit. Although Brexit represents a unique risk for European borrowers, even without Brexit in the near term, we could see other SSA alternatives outperform European borrowers in response to just deteriorating economic data in Europe or through simple mean reversion if average historical trading relationships are restored. So heading into Brexit, we prefer Washington-based supranationals, and and insulation from Brexit risk is just another reason to prefer owning them at current spreads. And Margaret, to turn it back over to you, how do you think Brexit impacts the Fed and the outlook for U.S. rates? Thanks, Dan. You know, in terms of the Fed and the U.S. rates market, Brexit is certainly on the list of reasons that the Fed is on hold. And it's one of the risks that's unlikely to be resolved anytime soon. However, as you know, there are many other persistent headwinds causing the Fed to pause. So any favorable resolution is unlikely to be a game changer for the Fed. In terms of U.S. rates, we continue to think that the market has already positioned for Brexit risk in U.S. Treasuries. As a result, a dragged out continuation of the Brexit drama is really unlikely to have a large impact on Treasury yields. In this case, the yield impact should be relatively modest, likely in the single digits, much milder than the June 2016 pricing. However, a more nonlinear global tightening of financial conditions could have an outsized impact. Basically, a hard Brexit scenario on the backdrop of continued deterioration in the global growth picture would add fuel to the risk-off fire that would burn in such an episode. Thank you, Stephen and Dan, for your insights today, and thank you to our Macro Horizon listeners. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.